G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday, the 11th of July, and our topics this week are concerns around the Murray-Darling Basin water allocation for irrigation. And can Australia learn anything from Thailand a year after cannabis was decriminalised? And of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deep and finish off, as always, with a Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, we wanted to shout out some of the countries from around the world where our listeners are located. So this week, we wanted to say Guten Tag to our listeners in Germany. Now, Adit, how are you today? I'm travelling very well, DK. We're just uh, mid a trip up to Sydney for uh, my mother's 80th birthday, so that'll be a, a fun family occasion, but just uh, currently stopped it at Barrel. So if any of the listeners hear a little bit of hotel noise in the background, uh, that's, that's why I'm not in the usual location. And... I was thinking of you this morning when I went out at uh, about a quarter past six for my my coffee uh, in the one degree temperature that was <laughs> lovely barrel, and I know oh. how much you enjoy the enjoy the cold. I got to say it was a little bit of a mistake going out just in my shorts and vest, but fortunately it wasn't a long wait for the the coffee, and I didn't have to to walk. But yeah. That went down particularly well when I, I, I got in. But yeah, I thought I'll have to let you know about that, given your your um, complete distaste for anything <laughs> below twenty three degrees. <laughs> Basically, yeah, twenty three even is a little bit cold, uh, yeah. depending on what I'm wearing. So, um, oh, well, as soon as you said walk outside uh, this morning to have a coffee, I oh, yeah, I got the shivers straight away. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that the, cold. The other thing I discovered today was something I've never had before: smoky flavored eggs. Because we they've got a little uh, hot plate thing here in the the hotel, so thought I will do up some. Um, I'll, I'll do myself some eggs, sort of save on on paying for breakfast. The only you know, gone of those days when you'd go into the supermarket and tear the dozen in half and just pay for it. Um, yeah. The only half dozen was uh, smoky flavored eggs which smoky is smoky eggs yeah, yeah. it's smoky. oh you've heard of them no i've i've never heard of smoky eggs no um not neither had i apparently they've got some i look because i've got their website on the thing they've got some chilled smoking technique and look it's certainly in parts are, it's not overpowering but it is uh it is a quite nice smoky flavor to it the outside of the eggs have got a little bit of a sort of darker color but it was a I say it was a bit of a novelty for me. That's kind of cool. I might yeah. have to check check out smoky eggs. Um, yeah, I do. I do enjoy smoked food, so I, I probably yeah. will enjoy a smoked egg. Yeah, look, it wasn't bad. It wasn't over the top. What have you been up to? School holidays have just gone back. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> I think many of our listeners that are parents, especially of young children. Uh, I love them dearly, can't get enough of them, but it turns out I can get enough of them and uh, two weeks is the limit. So um, <laughs> um, today I was uh, working from home and I just had nice silence because I did take some time off while they're on, on school holidays. So um, 
it was it was nice and quiet today uh, in in my life. So uh, not a lot particularly going on other than nice and quiet, peace and quiet is what I'm sort of looking for at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so that was sought and found today. So that's good. Um, uh, excellent. Yeah, speaking of uh, maybe some groups that might need to seek some peace and quiet themselves, irrigators and environmental groups have raised concerns about a proposal for a massive almond farm in South Australia, which could draw up to 30 gigalitres of water from the Murray-Darling Basin each year. The planned almond farm is being built by the US-owned Kumpatu Farms, I may be mispronouncing that, uh, on a property well, formerly known... I'm glad it was known... you pronouncing that one, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, Kumpatu, I think it's meant to, meant to be uh, meant to be pronounced. Not sure. Uh, it's a property formerly owned, uh, formerly known as Monash Station in Monash in South Australia's Riverlands, roughly northeast of Adelaide, about 40 kilometres from the Victorian border. Kumpatu Farms last year advertised for a corporate farm manager for what it described as one of the largest horticultural properties in South Australia. Though trees are yet to be planted, but it is expected to be almost 2,500 hectares of almonds. That's a lot of almonds. Almonds mm. are a particularly thirsty crop, though, requiring up to 15 megalitres per, per hectare per year and local reporting suggests that the almond farm could use up to 30 gigalitres of water per year. Simon Youngblood of US-owned Renewable Resources Group Australia describes Comparto Farms as a foreign-owned Australian proprietary limited company. Youngblood says he cannot give total water use yet, but the farm plan to use and I quote, advanced efficiency irrigation that he hoped would reduce water use by up to 25 to 30% below almond industry benchmarks. The water would have to be bought from existing irrigation allocations. In spite of the forecasts, he said that the company planned to source all the water from below the Barmer Choke. I think I'm pronouncing that right, Barmer Choke. Uh, which we'll come back to that in a, in a second. He says, we're all working with the same amount of water in the system between willing buyers and sellers in any given year. While there are no certainties, we are confident that the water will be available in the market to irrigate our farm. Almond farms have multiplied along the Murray River on the back of the almond exports, growing by 213% in the last 10 years. Australia is now the second biggest uh, sorry, the second largest almond exporter in the world after the US. Hey, would you have picked that? I, I saw that fact as, as well when we were looking at this. Would you have picked that? I honestly, if you ask me, I'd have no idea where we're at in terms of no. almond production. Um, but I would never have thought that we were number two and America's no. number one. I, w honestly, who's buying all the almonds? <laughs> 
I think I think they're used for milk and things like that. I don't think it's there's not some person sitting somewhere on a mountain of almonds eating them. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the chair of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, says that there was already a supply risk from the Murray Darling in dry years, particularly for non-permanent plantations. Uh, sorry, for permanent plantations that need to be watered year on year as opposed to annual crops. If we're, if we're going to repeat a millennium drought, there's not going to be enough water to go around, he said, because it's permanent plantings. You've got no wiggle room when allocations get a bit short. They are used to be able to get water from areas in Victoria and New South Wales, which were more annual, but that's pretty much been exhausted. Kupatu Farms block is 20 kilometers west of the Renmark Irrigation Trust, which delivers water and infrastructure for 600 irrigators. The trust CEO, Roslang Arnott, said the amount of water required for the proposed farm would almost be as much as what's being used by the trust's 600 irrigators combined. I think that's really important to as a as a uh, a point of comparison because I can say thirty gigalitres and honestly that number is so large that that doesn't really make you know it doesn't make much sense even to myself. However, when you consider that there is over six hundred irrigators in the Renmark Irrigation Trust and they use approximately that much, yep, all every year. So we're talking six hundred, admittedly smaller farms. Uh, it, it, really puts in perspective how much Kumpatu Farms is, is expecting to use. Yep. She yep. said, irris- irrespective of where it comes from, they'll be taking around 30 gigalitres out of the consumption pool. That's 30 gigalitres that's not going to someone else's current farm. Remember, there is a limited supply of water. There isn't new water that's being allocated out. This is the water that's already existing in the system. The Almond Board of Australia CEO, Tim Jackson, said the development would not require any new water as it would come out of the water allegation for irrigation. But the board, which represents 98% of Australian almond growers, said has previously sounded the warning about the amount of water available below the Barmark Choke in the Murray River, which is a natural constraint in the river system. Jackson says, it's common knowledge within the Lower Murray that if you go into dry times, there's not going to be enough water to be able to be delivered through the choke at Barma to adequately irrigate everything. The bucket of water is still the same size, but if you can make upwards of $18,000 a hectare on almonds and you can only make less than half of that growing something else, then change is going to be inevitable. Growers just move into crops where they can actually generate a successful business. And I think that kind of sums this whole thing up nicely. The yep. growers, they are, at the end of the day, the farms are businesses and the business is there to make as much profit as it can within limits, of course. Yep. So if you're growing anything else you're kind of a fool because almonds is the game in this area. Yeah, look, it does it does seem it does seem to be and you can't argue with that as a principle. 
as you mentioned as you mentioned that though there's a lot of a lot of variables and a lot of interested parties coming at it from from different angles um I, I recognized a few of those things were from that there was a gut that guardian article by gabriel chan and she had headed it or the guardian ed- editor had headed it, it headed the article as does australia need water wise agriculture or can it be managed another way and i felt like when i was reading that i thought the answer to it is I don't think it can be managed another way because I haven't seen any real change in how the states amongst themselves and federal government have managed the Murray-Darling any differently over the last couple of decades. Now, that's a bit pessimistic. Who knows? There might be a new way to approach it. But I, as a starting premise, think how do you work with how it's currently being badly managed? Exactly. And I mean, um, the Environment Victoria CEO, uh, Jonna Lanals, says the massive development could cause perverse outcomes for rivers and communities upstream. She said, once these trees mature, they need enormous volumes of water in summer. And without a change to trade and operating rules, that water will be pushed downstream at the wrong time of year, eroding riverbanks and destroying fish habitat. Unseasonable, unseasonal high summer flows cause significant damage to riverbeds which slump and collapse. They disperse young platypus from their burrows and elim- eliminate the slow slack water habitat of young Murray cod that, and they need that to survive. Irrigators in the upstream valleys like Goulburn also bear the high cost of water prices. Basically, it's a lose-lose situation for nearly everyone on the river except the big corporate players with the deepest pockets. And I that last sentence really hits home. This, this farm is 2,500 hectares of almonds. This is an American-owned foreign business that is buying up a huge property that's expecting to use, we've already heard, it's going to use more water than 600 other irrigators combined. This is big business pushing its way around, and they've basically, you know, without actually saying so, they've basically said, we're going to do it because we'll basically buy it out if we have to buy the irrigation yep. allocation that's what we'll that's what we'll do nothing's going to stop us that's basically what the, you read between the lines and that's what they're saying and unfortunately this means there are going to be smaller farms uh down river that are going to be affected significantly by this and even the farms in the same area are going to be affected to a point where some of them may go out of business because they're not going to be able to purchase the uh, irrigation allocation that they need. Yeah, look, un- unfortunately, that seems to be the problem with these large uh, corporations. I mean, y- you know, I lean heavily towards um, get more of a, a free market stance. However, this is not a free market. It's a corrupted market with how the Murray-Darling, Murray-Darling uh, river system is is being controlled 
by the bureaucrats who are in turn controlled by the people with the biggest pockets. And we, I understand the commentary that almonds are profitable, and I also understand the principle if the almonds are prof- profitable, then if you increase the size of your farm, you can get a, a better return. That That to me makes sense. And if there wasn't a flow-on effect to other people who are adversely affected by not having uh, the power with the people in charge of allocating the resources, then I would have no issue with this. You know, if the, for for example, and this is this is not a, the best example, but for example, if all you had to do to grow grow almonds was to stick a pipe into the the sea and take as much water as you wanted. I would think, okay, well, fine, everyone can throw a pipe into the sea. But because you've got this limited resource and because it impacts on so many smaller farms and we've seen the history of something like Cubby Station with the cotton farm, which was just an absolute disaster for people downstream. Towns were basically shut down because suddenly their water supply dried up. Now. Cubby Station can argue all we were doing was buying up water leases that were already in existence. The problem is those leases are only in existence because uh, the governments of the different states have created them out of uh, essentially out of thin air and magically said, well, that's how much water we've got. And the end result is it ends up favouring the big farm at the expense of the small farms. and. That's an historical thing that is easily predicted. The other thing that's easily predicted is uh, there was a comment. Uh, what was in there? There was two two other things that are easily predicted. One was the uh, expected dryness and the lack of available uh, water, rather than this technically correct division of water. That's easy to predict. Australia goes through droughts often enough that you can't ignore that. And the other one, which I didn't understand until I uh, read it in that article, was the the permanent nature of the plantations. If you've got perennial plants and there's not enough water to throw your wheat in or or rice or whatever is, is getting uh, irrigated, then that year you just don't plant it. Whereas if you've got something like almond trees, there's no year-to-year variability. They've got to be fed every single year. Uh, they've got to have the same consumption. And that's a very different beast. Yeah, that was actually something I hadn't considered either. Um, and and th- this area where where these farms are uh, located is very very dry. Like if you if you go to Google Earth and you go to the town of Monash, which is where this loc- uh, this farm is located, and you look at it on Google Maps. Uh, there is no green, <laughs> basically at all. Um, it is very dry, and you go. Sorry, you know, you just look at it and go. You want to plant <laughs> a thirsty crop here? Like what? This doesn't what? This doesn't seem to make sense at all. Um, and you know, unfortunately, apparently, uh, apparently, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm smarter than the the farm guys because <laughs> this doesn't make any sense, quite frankly. Um, it, uh, this kind of smells to me almost like an American company 
who owns Comparto oh, Farms. Hang on, hang on. It's not an American company. It's an American-owned Australia. What was yes. that gobbledygook that they uh, threw in that US I thought? As soon as owned, I heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, um, sorry, where is it? It is a foreign-owned Australian proprietary limited company. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear bullshit. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I actually tried to look uh, Kumpatu Farms up to see if I could find out any more about them. Uh, on them at all. Uh, they <laughs> were an incorporated company in 2020, and they have a website that just says coming soon, and that's it. There's, like, nothing else on them. Um, I couldn't find any ownership structure or anything like that. So, um, which kind of makes sense because nothing has, you know, really happened yet. Um, yep. So, yeah, look, this is, this is, this is one of those situations where we're talking about a reasonably dry location. The river is very much the heartland of this, of this area. It's not... Um, you know, you get you get the rains and everything turns green and it's beautiful and it's lovely. Um, but like so much of, you know, the Australian central areas, uh, when we get years like what's forecast to happen this year, uh, we're not going to get a lot of rain, alloc- a lot of rain. The water allocations in these river systems is going to plummet. Um, and we could be going years without uh you know the the cycle turning around again it's it's all well and good when things are good but things aren't good all the time especially in these these locations um where we yeah, have those, ex- those are all foreseeable that's you, you're exactly yeah. right they're the sort of things that if any of them happened you're not going to have people saying well who could have predicted that exactly exactly and and the thing that kind of annoys me as well is and look, you know, we don't know that this is exactly what's happened, but it just it just kind of reeks of foreign company comes in, doesn't quite understand what they're getting into, just sees the the money signs and goes, ah, cha-ching, we'll do this. But the reality is that it, things like this don't happen or don't happen on the scale very often for a reason. It's not because you're the first person to come up with this idea. It's that this idea probably isn't the right thing to do. Um, just like, and this is, you know, sort of outside the scope of, of this specific subject, but, uh, in 2018, uh, there was a ban on cotton in the Northern Territory that was lifted. You couldn't, you couldn't plant cotton in the Northern Territory. Since 2018, land has been cleared at a huge rate to grow cotton in the Northern Territory. And unfortunately, the similar stuff we're seeing where they're clearing land, um, sometimes illegally, uh, to plant cotton, they're draining rivers, uh, and the country's getting drier, and we're doing what I think is irresponsible, quite frankly. Um, And I think this is where the government, you know, needs to step in, but obviously the governments that have been in charge of this have been ineffective in the past because I think it's, you know, like you said, they're, they're sort of, bowing down to big business and they're not doing the right thing by the people of the land. I think the water management um, by the individual stakeholders could be better as well. And a big foreign company 
And I, I keep, you know, I say that because I feel like the people, obviously there's going to be, you know, lots of Australians employed and stuff like that. But I think the people that are pushing this don't understand the location. They don't understand the climate. They don't understand the cycles. I mean, I'm assuming all of this, sure. And I could be completely wrong. Um, and if you if you work uh, for Kumpatu Farms and you're listening to this, uh, please reach out and get in touch. I'd love to find out more. Um, yep about you know how you think this is a good idea quite frankly um <laughs> without impacting everybody that relies on that river um especially everybody south of you yeah i have I, i've yet to hear that that argument i'm not saying it's not out there because i haven't uh, I'm, I'm not claiming that i've done any deep dive in this but i'm yet to hear that argument exactly so hmm. I think it's time that we move on to our Two Ticks Town Talk. This week we're heading to my native state of Queensland. And we're heading out west once again into the outback. Our town this week was founded in 1888 and has a population as of 2021 of 3,124 people. This little town sits on top of the Tropic of Capricorn, meaning at midday on the summer solstice, shadows will be directly below the object, giving everything a really weird and surreal kind of look. Mm. Obviously, this isn't the only place in the world that this happens, but it is a fun little thing. Um, This town gets its name from the Thompson River on which it's situated, and the Thompson River is known for its length, also called its long reach. Ah. <laughs> so this week's town is the Queensland town of long reach. The first uh, Europeans to enter the area were part of an expedition led by William Lansborough in 1862. And this party initially tried to intimidate the local residents, the Ininggai people, by galloping their horses at them and shooting their rifles over their heads. However, they found out that the Ininggai are a bold, powerfully built people that did (laughs) not run away and were not intimidated at all, which is very cool. How (laughs) to be a fly in the wall of that interaction. Yeah, <laughs> things have gone horribly wrong. They're not fleeing in fear. Exactly, exactly. So hats off to them. A lot of respect for that. Uh, communication was established uh, through through the use of a translator and things became a, a lot nicer between the, the two groups. Uh, in the same year, in 1862, an enormous Bowen Downs cattle station was established across the region by William Lansborough, Nathan Buchanan, and William, uh, sorry, Edward Cornish. With the financial backing of Robert Moorhead and Matthew Young of the Scottish Australian Investment Company. The property... Bowen Downs, occupied an area of 3,885 square kilometres, which is approximately 1,500 square miles at that time. It's since been slightly broken up, but it is absolutely huge. Um, 
so that's the founding of the town. However, in 1921, something that kind of put it on the map happened. A small and up, small, up and coming aircraft company <laughs> moved from Winton, which was about 171 kilometers up the road, which I know sounds a really long way, but out in the outback, that really is just, it's literally the next town. <laughs> and there's not it a it lot. is up the road, isn't it? It really is. There's, <laughs> there's not many roads and it's, <laughs> it's the next town up the road. So um, not a lot in Winton. So they moved their headquarters down to Longreach. They called themselves the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services, and they provided postal services and joy flights. Of course, that stands for Qantas. So on the 2nd of November, 1922, 84-year-old Outback pioneer Alexander Kennedy became the first passenger on a scheduled service piloted by Hudson Fish receiving the ticket number one for a flight from ah. Longreach to Cloncurry. What date What date did you say that was? Uh, November 2nd, 1922. Ah, okay. Uh, Qantas relocated its headquarters in 1930 to Brisbane. Um, today, though, you can visit the Qantas Founders Outback Museum. The museum tells the history of Australia's national airline Qantas from its early beginnings in the outback in the 1920s to the present day and includes the heritage-listed original Qantas hangar. You can do a guided walkout on the 747's 25-metre-long wing. Not many places in the world will let you do that, that's for sure. Hmm. Um and I can tell you, I spent way too long researching this topic on the Qantas <laughs> Founders Museum uh, on their website, <laughs> virtually exploring all their exhibits. Um, so I'm, I'm, I have to go to Longreach and go and check it out. Quite frankly, they have a huge amount of aircraft, a lot of really cool Qantas stuff. So, so you can actually uh, walk because you know when you catch the the plane, you see their sign saying "Do not walk on wing." You can actually walk on it. Yes, and you can also sit in the pilot seat of a twenty uh, a seven four seven and pretend that you're flying it. And there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. Um, and the big one of the big draws is yes, you can walk out on the seven four sevens wing, take a photo, stand on there. Um, it's very cool. There's a, there's there's a lot of cool stuff at that museum, but that's definitely a big draw because I, I don't think there's actually anywhere else in the world that you could actually do that. So, no. Um, do they have a whole lot of safety barriers around, or is it just sort of like you know, don't be a dick and fall off? I'm not a hundred percent sure. It didn't look like there were any safety barriers. It is it is a technically a guided tour, so I think it's kind yeah. of like stay between the lines kind of thing. You know, yeah. the wing is pretty wide um and it's not that high like it's not going to kill you if you fall off it i don't think but um not 100 percent sure maybe one day i'll go and do it and i'll tell you ah excellent oh that's interesting that's really interesting uh there is uh so slight flashback to last week's uh two ticks town talk where we were out in the northern territory we have another desert golf club out at Longreach. Uh, and this one, uh, the, the, the Longreach Golf Course, uh, does have a little bit of grass. Uh, it sort of comes and goes, but, but I wouldn't say it is a grassed um, <laughs> uh, 18 it's holes. It's insinuated. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does have, instead of uh, like tarmac or bitumen um, greens, they're actually made out of sand, which I think will make things pretty tricky when it comes to putting. So, um, oh, I did, I did when I, I, I was having, it went round in my head, we were talking about the uh, golf course at Tennant Creek. And yep. uh, I think we had, had thought it was it was bitumen on yeah. the. I think, is it not? Is it not? I think now I didn't. I because you just reminded me then, but um, I think it was actually more like a, a, a motor oil, like used motor, like it was a it was a heavy oil that oh. meant it could actually be tamped down. So it still had a bit of roughness to simulate a, a, a green. Uh, but it wasn't. I don't think it was actually bitumen. Look, I should, I should, um, I should look that up rather than once again speculating. But when we'd said it the other day, the, uh, last week's uh, podcast, it was going round in my my head, and I think it might have been like a heavy oil. Yeah, that would actually make sense because it's it's black to look like. So I think yep. we both guessed yep. it was bitumen. But they, there you go. Uh, Longreach also has the Australian Stockman's Hall of Fame, uh, and that was officially opened in 1988 by Queen Elizabeth II. The purpose of the centre is to showcase the history and culture of life in rural Australia, and I feel like Longreach is about as rural as you can get, Mm. to be honest. Um, (laughs) Very cool, very small town obviously it's only got three thousand permanent residents uh but it, it is it seems like a cool little place to go it has a lot of history there's also a race course there um and it's actually somewhere i'd quite like to go another one on the list i i was actually planning a trip to go out there in june this year uh but it kind of got derailed by a few other things um i was going to do a bit of a bit of a big trip for a couple of weeks uh but it it did get a little bit derailed so um in the course of this two ticks town talk uh, the research for it i have definitely renewed my (laughs) my uh plans (laughs) so next year i want to go out uh in the cooler months because of course it can get extremely hot out there but but at the same contrast during the winter it is extremely cold so i'm sort of uh, maybe like in September or something, uh, I might go out there and and uh, when I do, I'll definitely let you guys know. Oh, excellent! Oh, yeah, I hope you get there. Very excited to go to the to the Qantas Outback Founders Museum. Um, I can understand, and I can understand getting a little bit of a, a buzz from walking out on that that wing. Yeah, I didn't look how much it costs because it, it it's probably an up bloody arm and a leg. But you know, if you're yeah. out there, you got to do it. There, there, there's a captive audience, I guess. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't exactly go to the opposition. And no, you know, I know from from from, uh, from past experience that the the host is always screaming at you when you're uh, trying to open that emergency door, saying, "Look, I just want to have a quick walk out before we." We take off, you know, they get a bit thingy about that. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't like it. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, nah, it'll be good. It'll be good. So, 
What can I learn? What can Australia learn from Thailand a year after cannabis was decriminalized over there? Over the past year, thousands of marijuana businesses have flooded the streets since Thailand decriminalized cannabis in a help to boost tourism, agriculture, and the wellness industries. In June last year, Thailand became the first country in Asia to take marijuana off the banned narcotics list. Before the new rules took effect, possession of cannabis could have landed you in prison for up to 15 years. The government's intention was to allow people to grow, sell, and use the plant for medicinal purposes, not to promote it for recreational use, though. But from the outset, the rules have been really foggy. It wasn't clear where you could smoke it or how much you could buy. Proposed legislation has failed to pass through the parliament, leaving the country without an umbrella law to regulate the plant's use. While smoking weed in public is illegal, recreational use at home is completely unregulated at this time. So far, more than 1 million people have registered to grow the plant, and there are about 9,000 legally registered sellers, although they have benefited the benefits generated by the new industry's gold mine. Even cannabis uh, advocates are calling for more rules and regulations. Kitty Chapaka, a pro-cannabis activist and owner of Chapaka, a marijuana shop in Bangkok, said that the new industry stemmed out of nowhere. Now she says that the government is left questioning, how do we deal with this? <laughs> I would say it's beneficial, she said. However, uh, it can also be predatory and damaging. She said it's kind of like being back in the Wild West. With concerns raised by some MPs over the substance abuse and protections for children, Thailand's new coalition government, led by the Move Forward Party, remains locked in debate over legislation. It is flagged reinstating cannabis as a narcotic until the bill is passed. That I think would get really messy really quickly, though. Yeah. I feel like you've led the genie out of the bottle. You can't just put it back in quite quite the same. Uh, as discussion ramps up to relax cannabis laws across Australia, Professor Simon Lenton, director of the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, said that it is important to look at Thailand's one-year experiment to help get the model right. Ahead of the laws changing last year, the Thai government celebrated by distributing 1 million free cannabis plants across the country. And thousands of so-called... It was so an interesting move, wasn't it? Actually uh, distributing the plants rather than just say, look, go for it. To be, this... Hang on. Let me finish and then I'll... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, have yeah. A lot, I have a lot to say about that, but yes, <laughs> it was a very interesting move. Uh, thousands of so-called entrepreneurs have jumped at the chance to benefit from the industry, which is forecast to be worth as much as 42.9 billion baht, which Ooh. is uh, 1.8 billion Australian dollars by 2025. Professor Lenton said people saw an opportunity to make money very quickly. He says, although there was a discussion about it being primarily focused on medicinal use, there has been a huge blowout in the number of outlets and reports of increasing rates of use, he says. In Chiang Mai, a tourist city which has become one of the country's weed hubs, many locals and businesses still see the laws change as largely positive. More than 300 shops have appeared over the, over the last year, and much of the country's supply comes from the nearby farms up in the north. 
Amanda Gurney, who runs a local cannabis shop, Green Dog, said people tend to respect the rules and the weed influx hasn't changed the pace of normal life. So, what path could Australia take? Professor Lenton said Australia should start moving away from strict cannabis prohibition, but it is important to take a community-focused middle ground approach. He said in Thailand and parts of North America, lax regulation has allowed the industry to become commercially driven. The industry wants to maximise profit and public health goals are lost. He said we shouldn't be repeating the same mistakes we've made with alcohol and tobacco. Last month, the Legalised Cannabis Party introduced bills into the Victorian and New South Wales and Western Australian parliaments proposing to legalise marijuana for personal use, using a model very similar to what's in the ACT. The ACT has decriminalised cannabis so that users can carry up to 50 grams of the drug without a prescription, but it can still can't be sold or smoked in public. What we're trying to achieve is a collaborative approach around harm minimization and sensible and meaningful reform to end the criminalization of people who consume cannabis for personal use, Rachel Payne, a Victorian legalized cannabis MP, told the ABC. The bills which need support from the major parties to become law follow plans announced by the Greens to introduce legalization at a federal level. The Greens model proposes up to six plants should be allowed to be grown at home and that weed could be sold through regulated cannabis cafes and dispensaries. The party said there was a potential for at least $28 billion in tax revenue to be raised over nine years. Professor Lenton said it was worth considering having a small number of retailers selling a limited range of products under strict government regulation. Other countries have also introduced cannabis social clubs, where groups of cannabis users register to gain rights to grow a certain number of plants for the club. So Mm. rather than following aspects of Thailand's approach, where it's difficult, to put, as I said, to put the genie back in the bottle, Professor Lenton believes... Professor Lenton believes that Australia can start by taking smaller steps. Interventions that really keep the profit model out of it and are really about maximizing public health benefits and minimizing public health harms, he said. And I think that is a nice lovey-dovey way to put it. And I think that (laughs) is, you know, we are starting from scratch in that respect. And I think that's a good way to do it. Though this part of me that kind of really likes how Thailand is doing it, where it's someone has had a great idea and gone, we'll legalize it and it'll be fine. So they've decriminalized it, given a million plants out, (laughs) and then nothing has gone through uh, the parliament because, quote, you know, politics. Um, And it is like the wild west. approach, isn't it? You know, just just get out there, do it, distribute it, and uh, worry about the ramifications later. Exactly. And there's part of me that kind of really likes that because it is yep. it is a big experiment. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of the locals are fine because, I mean, it turns out, shock horror, that a lot of people smoke weed even though it's illegal. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah, um, <laughs> so for a lot of people, not much has changed other than they don't have to hide it anymore, I think. Um, and, of course... 
of all drugs, uh, marijuana is probably the one that is probably the only one you could really do this to, if I'm honest, um, because it's you know relatively safe. It's uh, it, it, it's not easy to transport in huge quantities and stuff like that. So it's not like people are probably you know shipping it cross borders and stuff like that. Probably not as much as say other drugs. Um, I, I yeah, I, I think. I wouldn't necessarily like to see the Thailand model played out here, but I'm also excited to see how this plays out over there because yep. it is it is a big experiment. It is a bit Wild Westy. It's the sort of thing that doesn't happen very often these days. Um, and it, it is frustrating that Australia has really lagged behind in decriminalization of, of cannabis and cannabis products. Um, in... Yep, we can throw 30 gigalitres at a freaking almond farm, but we can't throw, you know, half or a quarter or a tenth of that at some one of the world's most useful crops. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, hemp is obviously, um, that's a whole thing, and there's entire industries that can um, benefit from that. Uh, but at the same time, it, I think it's worth remembering just, just from a recreational drug use point uh there is huge amounts of money to be made uh for these industries we can employ australians uh we can take it out of the hands of some of these uh groups that you know don't necessarily have the the taxpayer the end user and our laws uh in in their best interest there's a lot of criminal enterprises that um you know, run with these sorts of sorts of things. So it's already happening. I don't know why we're not regulating it, taxing it, and just getting on with it. Um, I just yeah, that's I feel bit, like, yeah. that's a bit that throws throws me as well. It's not as if we're uh, at the beginning of something where we think if we can jump in now, then we can we can do something uh, about it. It's, look, it was heartening to me to hear that uh, the the legalized cannabis party has been able to introduce these bills and that it has, has actually uh, gotten the support from the general public to do it. Yeah, you know, to me to me it's a it's a it's a no-brainer. It's a sensible thing to do. Yeah, you know, my opinion unsurprisingly is that the government should be completely out of it. People should be free to do what they uh, want with their, their own body. But in the um, structure of the current system, proposing the, the decriminalisation, putting laws into each state sounds like a, a good move to me. I mean, we, we've we had discussions previously on Australia Talks and sort of fairly much of the one mind that people are doing it, let's work out a way that we can, can legalise it rather than uh, yeah, drive the thing underground and therefore drive it into the hands of criminals. Uh, so we sort of agreed on that. The legislation on this is the the interesting part of it, and I like that legalised cannabis is pushing it at the state level, in that the Greens are pushing this at the the federal level, and I also think too that the Greens are giving the tax incentive point of view is a powerful argument, particularly nowadays when we're so we're so focused on on how overrun the debt is and uh, government needing to to spend. I think that's a good way that you can push that legislation. 
and that Canberra, you know, the the seat of the uh, the, the, where the nest of bureaucrats actually hatches uh, is the one that is experimenting with the the legalization or, or decriminalization at this this point. To me, that seems a sensible way to to change the legislation on both those levels from two different parties. Yeah, and it is kind of frustrating because as of right now, at least in Queensland, I don't, I don't know what it's like in other states, so I can't. Obviously, the ACT is a bit different, but um, you can already get a legal prescription for medicinal cannabis uh, basically for, for nothing, like for no reason at all. You can do it over the phone. Like, it's yeah, it's. Right. I don't want to call it a farce because it's not, and it is all above board, and it's it's you know, but but you, you the, and it is the, a genuine medicine. It I mean is it is uh, you know like all these systems, you're going to have people who are thinking, well, I'll just I'll just rot the system, even though I've I've seen on I, I think it's medical cannabis Oz or something like that a subreddit there, at, you know, some of the prices they talk about. I think well, that's not exactly cheap. No, it's not cheap. It, yeah, no. But it is it is a a genuine herbal medicine for a lot of people who who benefit um, quite significantly from it. Yeah, my point was uh, the the bar of entry is very low to get access mm. to it. If you want to get access to it, you basically can, and I quite like that because it it's. You know, I think with these things, when they go, oh, well, we'll have it for medicinal use, sometimes that can can be so restrictive that it basically helps no one, but but the parties can use it for a political win, um, at least in Queensland. And I think other states are similar. The bar of entry to get access to medicinal cannabis is very low. Uh, it, it isn't cheap. That's probably the only issue is that it is quite expensive a a good a couple actually several good friends of mine uh have prescriptions themselves um the quality is outstanding let's say but the price (laughs) is is very high the the difference though is these guys are getting access to a product they were already purchasing you know by illicit means um that they're now getting they're getting exactly what they what they order. They know what they're getting. They know yeah. how much they need to take. It, it's like any medicine, you know. Um, yep. the, they're getting the exact dosage and everything like that. So, from my point of view, uh, I look at it and go, "Oh, well, that's way better um, because it's a regulated market. Yes, it's expensive, uh, but essentially, it's being treated like medicine, and and that's how they're using it like medicine. So. You know, I I can see a similar process, or or it, basically it being expanded that that existing system and framework, but just being expanded. And I I think it kind of is over time because I remember when it first came in a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine went and got it, and I think there was only one one company that was selling it, um, and it was even more expensive than it is now. Um, so the price has come down a bit, and the options have expanded as well. So there's already some of that going on, but I feel like, you know, we're, we're so close, but we're so far yep. at the same time. Um, and we just need someone in the, the federal parliament to 
you know, a couple of people from the major parties to kind of push this over the line. Um, and it's just well, that's it's where the holdup is, really, isn't it? It's it's the it's the two majors. That's that's yeah. where the big problem is. Exactly, and I'm actually like of all uh, political parties, I'm kind of surprised that Labor is dragging their heels with this one. It would be such an easy political wind for them you know the lnp is never going to do this just because it's it's sort of against who they are as a party and their their character uh but but i feel like labor could definitely lean into this um but maybe we'll see that well i mean it kind of is it's it's definitely free free political points for them and look maybe they're saving it for a rainy day like the next election or something like that and they're gonna go oh hey you know forget about whatever bad thing we've done uh how about this and and then it'll it'll all go off so Oh, um, I, I like that bit of cynicism in there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, we've got to be realistic. You got they got to get something out of it as well. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of what what's most likely going to happen. Um, if you really want it in Australia right now, you you can get it through through the medicinal process. Uh, of course, there are there are hoops to jump through, and the costs aren't aren't insignificant. Um, but once, once you've sort of jumped through those hurdles, then, you know, the world is your oyster. Um, but it would be nice. Sorry, sorry, go on. Well, I mean, it would be nice if it was, you know, just like we deal with tobacco or alcohol. Just go down to, to Dan Murphy's to a registered liquor merchant or a tobacconist and, purchase it there i don't see why it should be any different quite frankly yeah and i think the uh for, for me the the flow and effect is it's more than just uh an intoxicant there's a whole a whole range of products um you know with with side health benefits there's a bit of a an anecdote uh, a mate of mine his um i i can't remember the disease that his his mum uh was his mum had and uh, it was causing her a, a lot of pain, and she tried a whole lot of other things. And he had said to me, do, "You know, do you know how you get some of this um, this this CBD oil, or, or I think it was CBD oil he was after, or that type of thing?" Because he just wanted he, they were out of options, wanted to explore somewhere else. Um, and because I knew of this this uh, the, you know, this this Reddit site, um, I got onto there, which had. Like, to be honest, I had mixed reactions. I got mixed reactions from asking my question, but that's that's another story for another time. However, was able to find out some of the the process and some of the things that she could do. But it was it was something that rather him rather than him being able to just you know uh, Google it, say okay, well here's my local local pharmacy that sells these uh, these cannabis based products. Let's see if Mum can get some relief from that. It had to be. Let's see if I know somebody who might know something and go through that. And then, okay, here's the hoops you have to go through. And it struck me at that time that it shouldn't be that hard for him to be able to see if he can help a, a family member who's suffering. And for me, that's one of the probably the, the big benefits from, from this is the secondary industries, the, the, the medicinal, the uh, materials, the, the, the paper. There's there's so much that you can do with this product 
that uh, I think you know, Australia's in a prime position to benefit from it and to actually capitalise, hopefully, in a way that's going to exceed what we've seen in uh, places like Thailand and, Cam- uh, and Canada. Yeah, because, uh, look, I think there is also a benefit to being last. We can kind of look yeah. around and see what's worked and what's not worked and not make those same mistakes. Uh, but mm. at this point, it's a case of we're going to be left behind if we don't. And, we, and quite frankly, especially Thailand decriminalizing it in this way because it is a popular uh, holiday destination for Australians. And I fear if somewhere like, as unlikely as it is, somewhere like Indonesia, particularly the Bali, uh, decriminalizes marijuana, we're going to see a huge uptick in travel for recreational drug use. You know, uh, places like, you know, very, very infamously places like Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands particularly, but Amsterdam is uh, notorious for it. Um, A lot of people would travel there to, you know, smoke, smoke and uh, take, take illicit substances and and have a good time. Mm. Um, If somewhere like Bali or or even Thailand, um, now that it's decriminalized over there, is going to uh, benefit, Australian dollars are going to be spent in those countries on these substances. That's the reality. So do we want to do you know how many Kiwis would come to Australia to the to the, the Gold Coast and Brisbane if they could oh. if they you know for for uh, they're coming anyway, so we may as well take some more dollars off them. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, uh, there's just there's such a big opportunity here that I'm looking at going, it's it's silly not to. Um and it's it's almost frustrating that it still hasn't happened. Um, it is frustrating. But, you know, I'm sure it's going to. It's just a matter of when. So, uh, Anthony Albanese, you, we know you listen to the podcast. So, if you could uh, pull your finger out. I know you've got a lot on. Uh, you're a busy bloke, mate. Uh, uh, he's probably going to be delayed on this one because I think he's at the NATO summit uh, in Lithuania right now. But I'm sure he'll listen to it on his flight back. Uh, yep. And when you get back, Albo, uh you know, line up those bills and let's 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 get it going. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Hundred percent agreement on that one. Speaking of getting going, <laughs> what's <laughs> happened this week <laughs> in Australian history? I come from a well, this week in Australian history we're covering uh July sixth to July twelfth. Uh, so let's rip into it. July 6th in 1813, the first commercial shipment of wool sent to Britain by John and Elizabeth MacArthur. So 1813, that was earlier than what I would have expected. I know that wow, was one all of the way the- to Britain from here. That's a long yep. way. Yep. I know that was one of the plans, but that was uh, interesting to read. Uh, 1892, John Simpson Kirkpatrick. The man with the donkey at Gallipoli was born. Um, you know, it's an, an iconic image uh, for for Australians. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 1904, streetlights in Sydney were electrically lit. Uh, 1942, elements of the Australian 9th Division arrive in El Alamein and the division subsequently takes part in the First and Second Battle of El Alamein. 
which is incredibly famous for basically defeating the Germans in North Africa. Mm. It was a big deal. Big part of history right there. Yep. Yep, exactly. Uh, 1964, Kevin Conway was killed in action, and he was the first Australian battle casualty in the Vietnam War. Um, yeah. the, the first of too many, unfortunately, in that. Uh, July 7th, 1851, news of the discovery of gold at Clunes, Victoria, is published in the Mercury. Now, we mentioned that, um, I think we mentioned that last year, last week when we were talking about Tennant Creek, that uh, it was the last great gold rush, but that uh, Victoria had had the one. But that was published in the, the Mercury. 1907, the Australian Navy Cadets is established. Well, now that's something close to your heart. Oh, it sort of is, but it is. cadets are like kids. Um, and it kind of like scouts, I guess, is the closest like equivalent that most people would mm, understand. Okay. Um, I, part of me, like I was never a, a naval cadet, not, not because... Like, I wouldn't have been it just because there wasn't a cadet establishment near where I lived. So, if there was, I, def- I probably definitely would have would have been a cadet, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but Navy cadets have this thing where, um, this is going off on a total tangent, but they they themselves, as, you know, they, they're, pre- they're kids, so they're like pretend uh, sailors. And they um, they have their own ranks and stuff like that within the cadets. And when I was at recruit school, there was a bunch of cadets that were uh, coming to do uh, sort of like a week, like a camp, if you like. Um, right. They come to the real Navy base and they, they do, you know, uh, a bunch of different things around the base. Uh, for a week and they would eat in the mess where we would eat and stuff like that. But they had this sort of air of arrogance around them because we were recruits and, of course, they had their own rank structure and that kind of stuff. So they pre- uh, they like to think that they outranked us. Uh, but the reality is you are children and we are <laughs> genuine we are genuine uh, sailors. Or, I mean, we're, we're recruits, right? So the American yeah. equivalent, uh, of course, in the US Marines very famously is called boot camp. Uh, so it's pretty full on. It's, it's not exactly a super fun 11 weeks at uh, HMAS Cerberus down near your way. Yep. Uh, very cold. And uh, the last thing we wanted was a bunch of snotty little kids pretending to be sailors <laughs> telling us uh, that they outranked us and to get out of their way. And we politely <laughs> told them to, uh, you know, shove it where the sun don't shine type thing. So, um, so I, have a, I have a love-hate relationship with the cadets. But if my son, either of my sons, if we lived in an area that were, where there was a cadet base and they wanted to join, I would very much be um, – I would really kind of push them into it, actually. (laughs) Ah, ah. Okay, continuing July 7th, 1986, uh, relating slightly to what we were talking about before, Brian Chambers and Kevin Barlow became the first Westerners executed in Malaysia under strict new Asian drug trafficking laws. Now, I I do remember that. Yeah, 1991, the Australian Republican movement was formed amidst a growing debate about Australian republicanism. Uh, And 2002, the British naval destroyer HMS Nottingham, D, 
I don't know what that means, runs aground off Lord Howe Island. Uh, the D91 is its pennant number. So you know the number on the side of the ship? Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So okay. the D, okay. D is for destroyer and it's 91. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, very, very embarrassing for the knowledge. British Navy, I should say. Oh, was it? Why is that? Ah, uh, you know, you... If you ground a ship, it's pretty embarrassing. It doesn't matter who you are, but for a naval vessel to ground, a sh- you know, it's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> it's like well, it's like yeah, a, a you know an airline pilot uh, having a rough landing or, or crashing a plane. It's not exactly a you know a stellar move, uh, and grounding any ship, even if the ship is fine, it's still embarrassing. So like doing a reverse park into a pole that you should have seen. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> July 8th, 1936, the federal government announces an increase in military training strength in response to the rise of fascism in Europe. 1963, Margaret Court becomes the first Australian woman to win the Wimbles single, uh, to win the Women's Single Tennis Championship at Wimbledon. I mean, 63, it's, it's sort of a while, really, when you consider how long they would have been playing. Um, Well, because, I mean, Australians do really like, we love our tennis in this country. Yeah. So you would have, yeah. Maybe she kicked it off. Maybe we didn't care about tennis until she won it. Uh, Good point. I have no idea. That's No, no, that's good uh, good speculation. Uh, 1991, the first share offer uh, for the newly privatised Commonwealth Bank comes out. Jeez, um, to be a to be one of the initial shareholders of the Commonwealth mm, Bank, ooh, that's yep. um, you would have made a pretty penny, I tell you. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, July ninth, nineteen forty one, Australian forces in Lebanon capture Demur, opening the way to Beirut and leading the Vichy French to seek an armistice. So it's another look. I, I suppose Australian history, so obviously it's biased towards um, Australian. Achievements, um, but it is we did very well in that, yeah. yeah, in that North African Middle East campaign. Australia just dominated, yeah, yep, yep. It, it, it turns it, out we're pretty good at war. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. take from that what you will, but apparently, especially when it's hot, we do very well. <laughs> uh, 1946. Bon Scott, lead singer of ACDC, is born. And I'm assuming at some other This Week in Australian History, we're going to hear when he died. But anyway, 1946 was when Bon Scott, um, impressive voice. Mm. July yeah. 10th, 1864. Austin Chapman, the Minister for Defence, is the first deacon government in the first deacon government, is born in Bong Bong, New South Wales. And in That's fact, yeah, I, where I'm staying now in Barrel, the uh, I think it's I think it's the main street. If it's not, it's close to the one of the main streets. Is uh, is Bong Bong Street? So Bong Bong street. that's yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. 1911, King George V grants the title of Royal Australian Navy to Australia's naval forces. They certainly uh, ripped into it after Federation, as you would expect them to, but um, didn't take long to get a whole lot of stuff happening. No, got to get no no time like the present. They say. Yep, July eleventh, nineteen sixteen. Gough Whitlam, later PM of Oz, was born. Uh, nineteen seventy four. Sir John Cor- Kerr. <laughs> Sir John Kerr. 
was sworn in as Governor General of Australia. Those two are inexorably linked in history. Mm-hmm. 1979, American space station Skylab crashes in Western Australia. That was a big deal. That was pretty. That was pretty exciting. Where's it going to come down? And you know, yeah. I can't remember the bloke who found the the, the wreckage. And yeah, you know, so first sort of uh, real thing of you know, a bit of space debris hitting the land. It was because a lot of them now get um, they call it deorbiting, and they they deliberately crash <laughs> them off the coast of New Zealand. Um, you know, just in the ocean because it, it sort of doesn't matter uh, yeah. where where it sort of crashes. You know, it's not going to hurt anyone. Uh, but, of course, the Skylab, I, I don't think it was on purpose. I think its orbit decayed yeah. in it and it kind of, we weren't sure exactly where it was going to crash and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, I know the the town where it crashed into sent NASA a bill a fine yes. littering, um, which yeah, was It's right. <laughs> very fun. That's a quirky little bit of history as well. So, I was remember that. That's right for littering. Um, yes, for littering. That's yep, yep. <laughs> I, in fact, I can't. God, I'll have to look into that. I can't re- can't remember what the outcome of that was, but it was. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they got their fine paid. But anyway, it was a fun. It was a fun thing to do. Um, Nineteen eighty-seven, the Bob Hawke-led Australian Labor Party is returned to power after a double dissolution federal election. Uh, July twelfth, eighteen sixty-six, Frederick Augustus Bowles Peter, the founder of Peter's Ice Cream, the health food of a nation, is born in Skio, Michigan. So yeah, Peter's. That's a um, yeah, famous Australian brand. Yep. And 1957, July 12th, our last uh, This Week in Australia history fact is Larry Anthony, Federal Minister in the Menzies Government, dies in Mwollombar, New South Wales. His son, Doug Anthony, is elected in a subsequent by-election as member for the Division of Richmond. That's kind of cool. I never knew that. So he, so Larry Anthony dies... Yep. And his son is re-elect- is elected into his electorate that, uh, during the by-election that was triggered by his death. That's kind of cool. Yeah, didn't know that either. Yep. Oh, to, yeah, look, in, in terms of those things, I, I agree with you. I think it's uh, pretty, pretty interesting. And I'm sure Doug Anthony raised a beer, which leads us to our 4X bottle top question. <laughs> Okay, I'm the asker this week. Uh, I, for some reason, think you're going to get this. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> the, press, the pressure's on. Pressure's I, I, on. I, I yeah. have a lot of money that you're going to, to get this. Otherwise, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> 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 okay, what is a group of jellyfish called? Oh, this is easy. It's a flop. No. No, 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 that's wrong. Hang on, hang on. No, no, no. Ridiculously close. We've done this before. It's not. It's. Have we? Oh, no. Did we I think this I've with, got this bottle top before. This with I, no. Oh, maybe. No. Ah. Oh. I've. I always thought it was uh, a flop. Uh, but I remember getting uh, the bottle top for this. Yep. And it's not a flop. 
I don't know where I got that from. Um, it's because a, you're sort of in the you're sort of in the um the 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 right region. Thinking of it as a as, as a flop. Do you know what it is? I think it's because a couple of months ago I was down. I was in the Sunshine Coast and I went to Underwater World, which is like an aquarium, and they had a thing about jellyfish. And I remember very proudly saying to my son, ah, a group of jellyfish is called a flop. How weird is that? Because they're floppy, I guess. I don't know. Uh, And I remember now it's all come back to me. It's not called that. It's called, I think it's a bloom of jellyfish or like a swarm. Not jellyfish. I, I'll, I'll give you a hint just a moment. And as <laughs> as we also always say, keep in mind we're reading from a bloody bottle top of the stubby. So yeah. Um if you had something that was jellyish and it flopped on the ground, what sort of sound would it make? Oh, it's a smack. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well done. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure if you actually looked this up, I think it's called like a bloom or a swarm. Um, now that I think of it, I can I can bloody see it written on the wall as a piece of trivia, and I <laughs> had to stand there and eat humble pie um, because of it. So, <laughs> um, so shout out to Underwater World in the Sunshine Coast. It's uh, it's a good aquarium. It's pretty cool. Great for the oh, kids. Very good. So, um. I've also looked up, while you were finishing off uh, this week in Australian history, I've found an ABC article about Skylab. Uh, This was written on uh, by Bridget Judd in May 2020, and it turns out there was a $400 fine issued uh, by the Shire of Esperance uh, to NASA for littering. I'm sorry, the U.S. State Department. Uh, $400 sanction for littering. Uh, It was never paid. Uh, But in 2009, a US radio station uh, raised the $400 and sent the Shire a check, like a giant novelty check from Highway Radio. I'm not sure exactly. It doesn't say what part of America that it it is in, Uh, but I think that's kind of fun. So, yeah. <laughs> that is. so they have uh, in the uh, town, the tiny town of Belladonna, which is where the closest town to where it came down. They have the check, giant novelty check, blown up, and it's <laughs> there. You can go and see it. So um, it's fun. <laughs> that is a, that is a, there's a, a another fun little factor to finish with. <laughs> so. On that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and good night. See you, DK. See ya.